You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. And I'm one of the pastors here. And this week, uh, in the beginning of the season of Eastertide, we're going to begin an eight-week sermon series walking through uh, the Nicene Creed. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And here's, here's why. We live in a world in which, like, truly just madness and godlessness and immorality are, are peddled and presented to us as obvious reality, undeniable truth, and certain paths to happiness and flourishing. And so in this sort of world, we, as God's people, have to be a people grounded in the truth about God and His good news through Jesus Christ. We have to have a way of proclaiming the faith and seeing the church united amidst our many differences. And we have to be faithful to the Word of God, the Bible. But if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know these aren't easy things to do. right? And these obstacles that we're facing, though the specific circumstances are new, these aren't new obstacles for the church. And luckily for us, For the overwhelming majority of the history of the Christian church, there has been one short unifying document which has served to keep the church as united as possible, to protect the church from heresy and forgetfulness, and to proclaim to the world the beautiful saving faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, given by us and lived through us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this document is the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed is, is this document. And, and for that reason, at Sojourn Montrose, if you want to become a covenant member at Sojourn Montrose, the Nicene Creed is the only theological statement that we require all of our members to unabashedly affirm. You have to affirm the Nicene Creed to be a member at Sojourn Montrose. And this, for some people, is a problem because the Nicene Creed is not the Bible, right? It's ancient, coming from the fourth century, but it's not the Bible, and we don't present it as equal to the Bible. The Nicene Creed was not authored by the Holy Spirit. It doesn't have the authority for the church that the scriptures do, but we require all members to affirm the Nicene Creed because we, like almost every other Christian group and denomination since the fourth century, receive the Nicene Creed as a faithful summary of of the Christian faith as revealed in the Bible. The Nicene Creed proclaims to us with clarity a basic doctrine of the Trinity, right? The idea that God exists as one God in three persons. It proclaims to us a basic understanding of the salvation that God provides for us through the work of Jesus Christ and the means through which he has revealed himself primarily through the Spirit and the prophets. And so outside of the Bible itself, The Nicene Creed is the most widely accepted piece of Christian theology in the history of the church. In that, hear this, every Christian denomination or expression of Christianity that affirms creeds at all accepts the Nicene Creed. Like, there's nothing else with that sort of acceptance. And really, every Christian denomination, even ones that reject the idea of creeds, affirm the faith proclaimed in the Nicene Creed. And so so what that doesn't mean is that the church is 
in complete agreement in regards to what every word in the Nicene Creed means or, or how that should be understood, but it does mean that the language of the Creed is so precise and casts such a broad net for the Christian faith that it is really hard and almost impossible to find a Christian who actually rejects any of the statements of the Creed. Even if there are Christians who reject the idea that creeds should be accepted. And, and so the Nicene Creed has been called by scholars the creed of the Christian church. Right? And there are other creeds. If you grew up a Protestant, you're probably more familiar with the Apostles' Creed. Um, but, but the Nicene Creed is, is more widely accepted than the Apostles' Creed. And it proclaims the common faith of Christians. And, and that faith is faith in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so with that being said, I'm going to ask that Aaron would put the creed up on the screen, and we're just going to recite it together before we really begin diving into it anymore. And so if you're a Christian in the room, please join me in reciting the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man, and was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again, according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits on the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Well, over the next eight weeks, y'all will come near to memorizing that, because we'll be reciting it every week, um, but, but really the next seven weeks following this week, we're going to d- dive into the specific language of the creed and, and the different doctrinal points that the creed makes, like what, what does it mean when we say those things, what do we believe because of those words, why are they important to the church, what does the Bible actually have to say about these beliefs, and, and, and how did the church arrive at this statement based on the Bible? Um, but this week, what I want to do is, is answer a, a few questions and give a brief amount of historical context for the Nicene Creed and, and talk about why, in light of its historical context, it's still just as important for us today as 21st century Western Christians. And so before we do that, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll continue to, to jump into this. Um, Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the gift that you have given to your church in the word 
and in clear and helpful summaries of your word that we can use and, and benefit from. I pray that over the next number of weeks that you would unite us together in a common faith, that you would empower us to write belief and to holiness, and ultimately that through this you would inflame our hearts with more love for you, more zeal for you, more thankfulness toward you. And I pray that you would begin that this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So God's people have, have almost always had basic summaries of their beliefs that saturated their life together. All the way back to the people of Israel following the Exodus. In Deuteronomy 6.4, God gives his people this phrase, which has become known as the Shema. And it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Or, in other words, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. And so this verse has become something like a creed for the people of Israel and, and now for the Jewish people. It, it served an important role liturgically throughout the history of Israel, and it rooted them in this doctrine of having one God who has revealed himself as Yahweh. And this phrase allowed Israel in one sentence to set themselves against and apart from all the other nations of the world who, who they would encounter, and these nations always serving multiple gods, lesser gods, disunited gods, and competing gods, but Israel had one God, Yahweh. He is the only God. He is the one. And the Shema falls into Deuteronomy following the giving of the commandments. And, and so it always reminded Israel of their call to be holy, to be obedient to Yahweh. And then it was preceding this statement, which says, you shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might, which Jesus calls the greatest commandment. And so then following that, there's this bit in Deuteronomy about how, how the people of Israel are to remember the law and teach the law to others, especially to their children, and that the law should saturate their life together, which leads into chapter 7 of Deuteronomy, in which God tells Israel that they are a chosen and beloved people to whom he has bound himself through covenantal relationships. And so the Shema, in this one sentence, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord he is one, summarizes or calls to mind for the people of Israel the doctrine of God. And it reminds them of their faith in him and that he is a covenant-making God of love. And so the Shema is not technically a creed in that it was written by God for God's people, but it serves a similar purpose, right? It, it summarizes the faith and it's a uniting statement for all Jews. And so if you're reading in the Gospels, what you'll know is by the first century when Jesus was walking the earth, that the Jews had, had organized themselves into various sects or theological tribes or camps where there were different aspects of the faith that they would emphasize or quibble over or argue over, but every Jew could be united by the Shema, right? Every Jew would agree, the, the Lord our God, he is one, right? We should love him. With, with everything we have, we should obey him. We should teach the law to our children. Like These were uniting things for the people of Israel. And in the New Testament, what we see is there are a number of phrases in the New Testament that serve similar purposes for the church. The one that I had Claire read is the Great Commission, 
right, which most of you are familiar with. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. These are the words of Jesus. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So, so while you might find Christians who argue about any number of things and who even debate what the specific language of the Great Commission means, you will not find a Christian who will not agree that the Great Commission is a summarized and condensed version of God's mission given to his people, right? It unites the church. All Christians believe, okay, we're, we're supposed to baptize the, na- the, the nations in the name of the Trinitarian God. Like, that's what we're called to do. And so the Great Commission also is helpful for us because it points us toward the fundamental doctrine of God in the church, which is the Trinity, that God exists as Trinity. We're to baptize the nations not into faith in God generally or vaguely, but into God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now hear this. This does not disagree with the Shema. The Lord our God is one. The Shema tells us that. And so that means that the Father, Son, and Spirit must be one God, our Lord. And so the early church, prior to the authoring of the creeds, no doubt believed in the doctrine of the Trinity, right? The creeds were not where this Trinitarian theology was invented, Rather, the early church has always and undeniably believed that God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And and here's why. Because you can't engage at all with any amount of intellectual or spiritual honesty with the teachings of Jesus or the apostles or the writings of the New Testament and come away thinking anything other than Christians believe that God exists in three persons, the Father, Son, and Spirit. The, The Bible is just undeniably clear on this, even if the word Trinity isn't used in the Bible. One God existing in three persons is fundamental to what we believe as Christians. But that's not a simple thing to grasp, right? Like, who, who just feels really confident in their ability to explain the Trinity, right? And so if you grew up in the church you probably at some point had a Sunday school teacher or a youth pastor or somebody try to explain the Trinity to you with a metaphor that was less than helpful, and I hate to break it to you, probably heretical. And and that's not because your Sunday school teacher was like a wolf in sheep's clothing or a bad actor or like intentionally being a heretic. It's because the human brain has a hard time comprehending and communicating the concept that the God of the universe is one God who exists in three distinct persons, right? Like, we have a really hard time grasping that. And so the language that we use to explain that becomes incredibly important because because if we lose our understanding of who God is, we, we lose our faith altogether. Like, if we get God wrong, we've lost everything. We have to have a proper doctrine of God if we're to serve Him, if we're to know Him, if we're to have any level of intimacy or relationship with Him. And the church fathers knew this. Like, early in the church, following the apostles, they knew we have to preserve this. But guess what? Like, 
they often struggled to talk about the Trinity in helpful ways. They would often say things that now we would read and be like, whoa, 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 that's like my Sunday school teacher. Right? Like, that's not the way it is. And so the creeds were born. Right? Like, this is the primary reason that the creeds existed. Um, there's two scholars who wrote an exceptionally helpful book on the creeds, Donald Fairbairn and, and Ryan Reeves, and they explain the necessity and value of the creeds with this illustration that I'll paraphrase. And essentially it's that to have intimacy with God requires knowing him, right? Because knowing someone requires, like intimacy requires knowing someone. And to know someone, you have to know them and the language of love toward them. You have to know how to speak love toward somebody if you're going to have intimacy with them. And, and we can see this through children, right? A child learns the grammar of their language over time. Which means that until they grasp that grammar of their language and develop a vocabulary, their expressions, if anything, but especially something as complex as love and intimacy, are clumsy, right? Like, children have a really hard time expressing their love and intimacy, even with their parents. And so, this is similar for the Christian expressing their love and developing intimacy with God, because we need to learn the grammar of Christian love and intimacy. Now, as an English speaker, if you came to me and you were relatively new to speaking English, and you wanted to learn the grammar and beauty of the English language, what I could do, and it would solve the problem to some degree, is I could give you the complete works of Shakespeare, right? Like, arguably, the, the most unbelievable user of the English language of all time. And if you read Shakespeare, you would pick up all, all the turns of phrase, you would pick up all the grammatical structures, you would develop a robust vocabulary, you would understand how to communicate all, any number of complex things with the English language. But it wouldn't be that helpful to you because if I gave you the complete works of Shakespeare and you're pretty new to English, you would need a guide on how to read Shakespeare, right? How to understand the language of Shakespeare. You would need something more like Dr. Seuss than Shakespeare to start with. And so similar, if you came to me and, and said, I want to learn the language of Christian intimacy. I want to learn how to pray to God using the, the language of love that, that's used in the Bible. And I just said, well, here's the Bible. Like, this, this will tell you how. Like, that's true. The, the Bible is sufficient to teach us all the language of the faith. It's sufficient to teach us every doctrine that there is, to, to teach us everything about God and how we relate to him. But for the, the Christian, like the Bible, one, is very large, and two, it's complex. And, and so a, a helpful summary, a guide, a teacher, a primer becomes necessary, and this is the role of the creeds. The creeds provide for us a faithful summary of the teachings of the Bible to serve as a guide and a signpost for us so that we can learn to speak the language of love for Jesus. And so the Nicene Creed teaches us how to speak well of Jesus, and therefore it teaches us how to love Jesus better because we're learning the language to speak about him with. And the church in the fourth century, they, they desperately needed to develop a helping guide to speak well of Jesus. And there's a number of reasons. Um, like One, like mass illiteracy meant the Bible is pretty unavailable to most Christians, and so having a helpful short guide is, is important, but primarily because there were people within the church who were both intentionally and unintentionally speaking wrongly about Jesus. 
And they were primarily doing this by making Jesus out to be lower in authority and divinity than God the Father, right? Arguing that Jesus was a created thing rather than the creator God, arguing that he was totally subject to the Father in every way, not just willingly as a submissive son. And so this creates a huge problem. The, the second big, big reason that the church needed to develop creeds is that in 324 AD, a man named Constantine became the ruler of the Roman Empire. And Constantine was a new but zealous Christian. And he saw that, that it was going to be important in an, in an empire ruled by paganism to, for the church to be united in the way that they speak about the faith. And so Constantine called for 300 bishops all over the empire to get together and to author a creed which would summarize the Christian faith, and, and eventually that became the Nicene Creed. Like a number of decades later, what we just recited is, is what happened as a result of that. And, and you might be thinking like, okay, this is a tall order. You're going to get 300 pastors together, and they're going to like agree on on a concise statement regarding the faith? Like, that's almost laughable. Like, okay, let's get 300 pastors in the room, and then they're going to write a statement of faith that they can all agree on, and it's going to be concise. Um, but here's why it wasn't so laughable. It's because the language of the Nicene Creed largely already existed before it was written. Like, they weren't reinventing the wheel. So, so basically, from the earliest days of the church, following the ascension of Jesus, congregations realized, like, if we're going to baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we need, like, a proclamation of faith in this Trinitarian God because it's so foreign to everyone, right? Like, the, the Jews, like, this concept of the Son and the Spirit being equal to the Father, like, that was new to them. And pagan Gentiles, like, they served all kinds of gods, and so like, there was a lot of ways to get that wrong. And so there started becoming these statements of faith in the Trinity, like in God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, much like the Nicene Creed that congregations were using for baptismal celebrations. And so they would have the new convert profess their faith in the Trinity, basically profess the creed prior to being baptized. And so these existed like all over the Christian world, like almost every congregation would have some sort of baptismal symbol. That's what they called them. And so when these 300 pastors came together, they were like, hey, like, this is what we've got. Like, let's start working on it. Because they all believed in the same God. And so they were just trying to clarify language. And what that didn't mean is that all Christians at all times were, were using the most helpful language to speak about Jesus or the Holy Spirit. Right? Just because there were a lot of these statements that were really helpful, there were some that were unhelpful. The ancient church was also full of the equivalent of your well-intentioned Sunday school teacher, right? Like who was using metaphors and, and relating to things that just weren't quite right. Um, and part of this is because of the, the world in which they lived. So the Greco-Roman world um, where the early church was situated, it was dominated by pagan religious thinking that involved gods of varying degrees of power and sovereignty, like often working against each other, sometimes working with each other, and within the most dominant philosophy of the day, which was Platonism, there was even this divine council that was kind of shockingly similar to the Christian trinity. 
So there's the, the high God who is kind of an impersonal God. He's the powerful God. And, and the goal, according to Platonism, of the human soul is to rise up into relationship with the high God. But there were lower gods. Primarily, there was the word God, the logos God. And then there was the soul world God or the spirit God. And they served as like guides and helpers in the human's journey to rise up to the high God. And so you could like probably already see like how this is going to be conflated with like the son who John calls the word, the logos, and the spirit, right? Like, oh, so like maybe the son and the spirit kind of operate like that where they're lower than the father, but they exist to kind of like help us rise up to the father. And like there's all kinds of problems with this, but you could see how the church was influenced by the cultural religions of the day. And, and it was a, a problem primarily because of the scriptures, right? Like if, if you start thinking the way of Platonism, you start abandoning the truth of the scriptures. Like in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So this tells us a few things. When Jesus is the Word, but he is God. He's the son of God, but he was with God. He was the creator God. He has always been. He wasn't created. He's not lower than the Father because he is the creator God, equal in divinity with the Father. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6 says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Paul says this blessing in 2 Corinthians. He says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, meaning the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And so all, all throughout the New Testament, um, whether it's the Great Commission or, or that blessing in 2 Corinthians or the beginning of John or 1 Corinthians chapter 8, what we see are the Holy Spirit, Jesus the Son, and the Father are equal with one another as God. Like there, there's not some, like the Father's not higher than the Son and the Spirit. He wasn't before the Son and the Spirit. He didn't create the Son and the Spirit. They are all God. They're all eternal. And yet they exist in these three distinct persons. A second huge problem for the church, other than just the scriptures, with this Greco-Roman kind of pagan influence, is that all of the the concepts of human salvation or flourishing or joy that were proclaimed in the pagan religions of the day were all ones in which a human was responsible for his or her own ability to rise up to God. And so the human was the one accomplishing salvation for themselves, which eliminates any sort of need for divine grace. And this is in direct contradiction to the Christian gospel and, and the scriptures, where in like Ephesians 2, Paul says that we are saved by grace through faith, and this is not your own doing, but it is a gift from God. Why? So that no one may boast. So you can't save yourself. You can't rise up to God. You don't have it in you. You're just unable to. Jesus isn't just a teacher or a guide who's going to kind of show you the way to get to God. Jesus says, I am the way to get to God. But if humans can't rise up to God on their own will or through cleverness or morality, 
how will they ever rise up? Well, the Bible's answer is that God has to come down. God has to come down. And so the incarnation of God in the person of Jesus is, is like such an important theological necessity for the Christian faith. Like we can't be saved unless God came down. And, and this is a distinction from every world philosophy and religion. That, that God has to come down. That only through coming down to us, living faithfully as we are unable to, and by dying sacrificially on our behalf, are we able to be saved by God and brought up by God rather than rising up on our own. And so God has to be one. He can't be multiple. But he has to exist in three equal persons, the Father, Son, and Spirit, and he has to have come down to save us through the person Jesus Christ. And these core doctrines were in danger for the church in the fourth century because the church was being overly influenced by the worldviews of cultural religion that they were saturated in. Right, like because paganism was just the air they breathed, it just started influencing and creeping in on the ways that they talked about God, the ways that they approached their faith, the ways that they lived. So the Nicene Creed served as a help to preserve the faith that had been proclaimed for the church since Jesus ascended into heaven. Right, like this wasn't new, but but it became really, really helpful that, that the creeds were written because the faith of the Nicene Creed is this faith in a Trinitarian God who has come down to save us and make us alive to his beauty forever. Like That's what the creed proclaims. And that's the distinct and saving faith that God has given his church. But we don't live in 4th century Rome. And so why on earth would the Nicene Creed be so important for us today? Um, here's why. The church in America, it, we're not being influenced wildly by Platonism or polytheism or paganism. Um, but there are worldviews that saturate our culture. And if we're not careful, if we don't hold closely to the historic and biblical doctrines of God in the Bible, then those worldviews will begin to influence us and our faith and the ways that we talk about our faith, the ways that we live out our faith, and that we will slowly drift into heresy and away from the truth about God. And Jesus said that it's the truth that will set us free. And so if we drift from it, we're no longer free, but we're once again slaves to sin and to a lack of truth. And so the worldviews surrounding us, they're a lot different from the ones our forefathers were facing in the first four centuries of the church. But we still have to deal with these cultural religions. And these cultural religions still promote the idea that humans achieve their own salvation. Right? And there are lowercase g gods who can help us experience this salvation and achieve this salvation. Gods with names like money, sex, power, psychotherapy, and unquestioned autonomy. Like these are the gods of our age. And none of them are named Jesus Christ. And in our context, our, our neighbors don't worship foreign gods. Like very few of them probably have wooden idols in their closets that they pray to. But they do worship primarily themselves. 
because the prevailing religion of the day is that the individual is the maker, creator, and authority over reality. Meaning that the individual is able and justified in expecting others to conform to the reality she has created in her personal construction. And so the autonomous self pursues salvation of personal satisfaction and happiness and nobody gets to argue against it because it's always true. So maybe you are starting to see why a creed that expresses a sovereign God who is over creation, to whom humans are subject and dependent upon for life and meaning is both a timeless and a timely proclamation for the church. We hold to the Nicene Creed because we still need to cling to the faith proclaimed within it. We need to avoid the pitfalls of cultural influence. We need to rely wholly on God for salvation and on nothing else. We have to rely on God for meaning, for judgment, for eternal life. And hear this, this is not only our faith that we have to protect, but this is also the good news that we proclaim to the world around us. The hope of the world is solely dependent upon a creator God, three in one, who has come down to save us. In a creator God, three in one, who has come down to save us, and who will come again to raise us up to judgment and eternal life. Like, this is the hope that our neighbors have, even if they don't yet know it. And so the Nicene Creed helps us to never forget it. It helps us to always proclaim it with clarity and without saying anything that is not true about God. It helps us to be the people that God has created us to be, saved us to be, and sent us into the world to be. The scriptures say that we are called to be a holy nation, a royal priesthood, and a people for God's own possession. The Nicene Creed helps us to live into that identity. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. He's the only one. He is the saving one. He is the glorious one. And he is our God. And and together, over the next seven weeks, we're going to get to learn the grammar of expressing our faith in him and our love toward him. And that's really, really good. So let's pray, and then we'll come to the table. Father, we thank you for the beauty that, that you are the same yesterday and today and tomorrow, that we can trust you and worship you and love you with all of our hearts and all of our souls and all of our strength and that we can be united to you through faith. Pray that over the next few weeks as we continue to to just lean in to the simple doctrine of who you are and what you've done on our behalf, that you would make us love you more, that you would make us a more holy people, a more vibrant people, and that we would be more equipped to share our faith with others so that they can experience the hope that only you provide. Pray that you would strengthen us and nourish us this morning as we come to your table and that you would send us into the world as beacons of light. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.